morning, good afternoon, or good evening, and welcome to Inside the Writer's Studio, the podcast where we talk with writers about their lives, their craft, their business, and their latest work. I'm your host, Charlie Lovett, and our podcast is sponsored by Bookmarks. Bookmarks is a literary nonprofit whose programs include the largest annual book festival in the Carolinas. Come visit Bookmarks at our community gathering space and nonprofit independent bookstore in downtown Winston-Salem, North Carolina. Inside the Writer Studio is also proud to be an affiliate of Libro FM, the audiobook platform that supports your local independent bookstore. Stay tuned at the end of the podcast for more information on Libro FM and a special offer. Our guest today is Sophie Cousins, who's coming to us from the island of Jersey in the English Channel and is the author of the recently published romantic comedy, Just Haven't Met You Yet. Sophie, welcome to Inside the Writer Studio. Oh, thank you so much for having me on the show. It's great to be here. So let's start out by talking about the island of Jersey, because I really feel like the island is, is a character in this book. It's, it's so richly set there. Um, tell us a little bit about the island and, and especially how, how you came to be there. You were, I think, a television producer and now you're living on a tiny island off the coast of France. <laughs> Exactly. Yeah. Does it, it, it? It's a strange story that I've ended up here. So I used to live in London and I worked in television. And then my husband actually got offered a job in Jersey and we thought we'd come for a year and see what happens. I'd never been to Jersey before. I've had very little knowledge of it. I mean, there's some things that, you know, it's famous for its milk and its potatoes. Um, but apart from that, I had no idea. So yeah, we moved here and then just fell in love with it and didn't really have cause to go home. So yeah, we've been here for a while now. Um, and yeah, I think it is a character in the novel. As, as soon as I moved here, I did think like it would be a great setting for a romance. There's something very wild about an island where the sea is just sort of, you know, bashing in at the coasts like twice a day. I think there's just something very atmospheric about that. So I did, I did always think it would be a brilliant setting. It, with such a strong presence of the island in in the story, um, what what do you see as the essential relationship between setting and story? I mean, for you, wh which comes first, and how are the two related to one another? I think so. For me, there were two elements to this book. I mean, the the initial premise, which uh, we'll talk about, but it's about a girl who picks up a suitcase at the airport and it's not hers and she looks inside and sees in the contents everything that she's looking for in a man so I think that was that's the jumping off point that's the kind of hook into the story of the kind of how your characters are going to meet and then in terms of setting I think for that particular story I wanted it to be a small island because it's the kind of place where if you're looking for someone, you know, you could conceivably find them. It's a small community. You know, she's got a few clues to go on. Whereas if you're in a big city, there's no way you're going to find someone who's gone off with your case. Um, but also for me, I just find it easier to write about a place that I know. Um, I think in terms of describing some of the scenes, some of the beaches, the places they go, it's just easier for me to be authentic when I can picture them in my head. But yeah, so it's a bit of a sort of shorthand cheat, I suppose, for, for building place. So did you find yourself, you know, you're sitting at home and you're writing, because she goes all over the island. Um, would you would you sort of pop in your car and go, well, what if she goes here and go look, or were these places that you're already really familiar with from having lived on the island? Well, I was familiar with some of them and there's some kind of cafe she goes to that I kind of knew really well. But then other places I did go and have a look. I mean, there's 
there's one place in particular which is called Plemont Headlands yeah. that yeah. Um, when I first moved to Jersey there was an old holiday resort there that was huge and it had gone derelict and it was really spooky and you know in the in the sort of 70s and 80s in its heyday it was this like incredible holiday resort and people used to come you know from all over Europe to go there and then it had kind of you know become derelict and then it actually has been put back to nature and it's just it's just a really interesting like piece of land when you think about the history it's had and I did actually just go up there to sort of see what it looked like now and to see if there's any traces left of that holiday resort because that kind of plays a part in my story and I just find that really interesting as well to look at a piece of land and if you didn't know its history now to look at that headland you would never know a holiday resort was there. Yeah um, I, I love that part and that place because it sort of I think it gets at something that is essential in this novel and that is sort of how things change over time and how how stories are are lost or not lost and we're going to get to that in just a minute but i, I want to just ask a couple more questions about the island first before we before we go off on the story um and, and one that really occurs to me is you know i think literature can be a very powerful way for us to go places that we haven't been or maybe a powerful way for us to find out about places we would like to go and you you do reference another famous novel uh, that takes place in the in the Channel Islands, although on a different island. Um, but did you feel like did you feel like almost an ambassador for for Jersey? I mean, I'm not going to say that this novel reads like a travelogue, but anybody who reads this novel and doesn't want to go to Jersey is, I don't know. Like, <laughs> <laughs> well, that's nice to say. I mean, I think for me, it was about showing a side to Jersey that I don't think has necessarily been seen. You know, like, I don't know if you guys had a show called Bergerac, but there was this famous, yeah. like, crime show called Bergerac in, like, the 80s that was set here. And so for people, like, for me, before I'd come here, I had this preconception of, like, Bergerac, cows, potatoes. And then also there's a, there's a new reality show here that's, like, the Housewives of Jersey, which... I think you guys have housewife shows. So it yeah. just shows a very particular side of life here. Whereas like for me, when I moved here, the thing that really jumped out was the history, the seascape, the beaches, the community. So I just kind of wanted to show the parts of the island that I love and that I hadn't seen, I hadn't seen kind of presented before. Yeah, yeah. So there, there are two things at the beginning of this book that I want to talk about briefly. The first of them is the first scene in the book, but I want to back up even before the first scene of the book. And you have this great map of Jersey. Um, can you tell us anything? Were you involved in the design about that? I mean, to me, this map, it just makes me feel happy. And that's not yeah. always the case when you look at a map, you know, so it's there, it is a, it is a thoughtfully designed map that I think puts you in the mood for the book that you're about to read. Were, were you involved in that design at all? I was, and I'm so glad you said that because there was a lot of sweat and back and forward that went <laughs> about this map because I do, I think that when you've got a book that's got a very clear sense of place, I think it's really nice to have a map just yeah. so that you, as a reader, you can kind of locate where she is and where she's going. And it's a weird mixture between all the places on the map all the kind of parishes and beaches are real, but then some of the houses and location are kind of invented. So it's quite cartoony, it's quite fun. I think the illustrator did a really good job of just conveying the kind of tone of the story. And it's kind of, it's not too specific, there's not loads of roads on it, but you kind of, you really get a sense of where everything is. And um, yeah, there's like lots of little crabs and lighthouses yeah. and you kind of get the picture of it being a seaside novel. And then the next thing we have is we have this, this opening scene where sort of almost unbeknownst to us, because we just are dropped in the middle of this interview and, and the main character, Laura, is, is interviewing this couple who seem 
just ridiculously perfect. I mean, they're really good looking, they're crazy in love, they have this wonderful meet cute story and everything else. And then in the middle of all this, we discover about this dead cat, which I thought was just this great detail because I mean, I, I'm guessing, but are, is, is perfect love, the perfect relationship, is that always something of a facade? Is there always a dead cat lurking someplace in, in the background? Um, you know what, that is actually, um, it's funny you've spotted that because that's just an in-joke with myself about the book <laughs> Save the Cat. I don't know if you've read Save the Cat. So there's, so there's a book about writing, which, to, which is called Save the Cat. And it says when you want to, it, uh, the, to summarize quite a complicated theory, when you want the reader to, to empathize with your protagonist, even if they're a flawed person, even if they do bad stuff, if in the opening scene they save a cat, you are going to root for that character and you're going to be with them. Um, and obviously saving the cat being a metaphor, it could be any, any kind of good deed or thing that makes you think, right, this is a good guy. This is someone I want to root for. Um, and so, yeah, it just made me laugh to see that there was a cat that did not get saved, that got killed <laughs> in the first scene. Um, and it's also just like a hint of that kind of crushing reality of all of the kind of, yeah, like um, fairy tale romance that sounds so good on paper that, yeah, in the background, there'll be a dead cat upsetting yeah. the narrative. So let's let's talk about Laura and, and the and the narrative a little bit. Tell, tell us about Laura, about why she travels to Jersey, what she's up to uh, as as we get past this sort of preamble scene and we get into the meat of the novel. Yeah, so basically Laura's a journalist and she works for an online lifestyle kind of platform and she writes this how did you meet column where she kind of meets people who have amazing love stories and have met in incredible ways. And she pitches to her boss, um, her parents' love story. And they had an incredible, like, you know, really fairy tale romance where they both found two sides to a coin from the Second World War, um, which had been made into a love token and they were reunited and they fell in love. And Laura has had this story on a kind of pedestal of the absolute, like, meet cute of all meet cutes so she goes to Jersey to write about her parents story but when she's at the airport yeah she picks up the wrong bag and when she sees inside she 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 convinces herself that this is her own meet cute obviously she's obsessed with meet cutes because of her job and when she looks at what's in this bag the, the guy that owns it has got her favorite novel he's got music by her favorite musician he's got a gift for someone that's the perfume her mother used to wear and she's a big kind of believer in fate and destiny and she just says well this is this has got to be the universe telling me something this is meant to be this is my soulmate now all I need to do is find him yeah and then she meets another person when she gets to the island as well who seems pretty uh, a pretty unlikely suitor I guess you would say uh, yeah, so so Ted, her cab driver, who's quite kind of gruff and he looks like he's kind of Tom Hanks in Castaway, where he's kind of been washed up on an island for many years and his uh, personal hygiene might be not what it was. And he's the kind of, you know, she doesn't really look at him twice when she gets in a car with him, but slowly they become friends and you kind of learn more about his life and his relationships that kind of make Laura reflect on her own. And um, it's kind of an unlikely friendship that, that, that blossoms between them. Yeah, yeah. And I love the way that she, you know, so quickly, and I think she mentions this at some point about how, you know, she says in London, she hasn't made a new friend in months or years or something. And she comes to this island and she's suddenly making all these, these friends, not just Ted, but other members of his family. And then long lost members of her own family and people that she meets when she goes to these places. Um, is that 
do you feel like that's sort of an accurate portrayal of the difference between a, a busy that, that we almost can feel that we're more connected to people in a smaller place than we are in a in a big busy city yeah i i i definitely think that's the case i think in a city everyone thinks everyone else has friends and everyone else isn't lonely and everyone else has kind of got their life going on and i definitely know friends who moved to london who found it quite tough because you know everyone's so busy all the time and they've got their lives going on and you know that specific example as well i you know we moved here and i did find everyone very welcoming and very friendly and i was talking about you know, new friends of mine. And, and a friend in London said, well, how have you got new friends? I haven't made a new friend in 10 years. <laughs> because, you know, they're in the same job, they're in the same, they've got enough friends, they're fine. But I just thought that was a huge advantage of moving to a new place. It does it does make you kind of make new friends and uh, yeah, exp expand your kind of friendship group. So that could only be a good thing. Yeah, and I think it works well in the context of a narrative too, because if she comes into a new space and she's just a tourist the whole time she's there and she doesn't connect with anybody, that's not going to be a very interesting narrative. Um, but but there's something about the smallness of the island and the community that we really buy into the fact that she is is able to you know make these these connections as quickly as she does. She says um, when she's getting ready to go to Jersey, she says it's strange to feel nostalgic for a place I've never been. Which I I loved that quote. Um, you know I think literature is really good at making us nostalgic for places that we've never been, whether those are real places or or imaginary ones. Um, but talk a little bit about how that attitude going into the trip affects Lara's um, experience once once she gets there. Yeah, and I think that I think that's true. Like places can have you can have a lot of expectation about a place. Like for Laura, she's grown up hearing this incredibly romantic story about how her parents met in Jersey and they fell in love and they stayed up late dancing on the beaches. And so she's got this fantasy in her head of what Jersey is. And so I think she she goes in with a, with a very high expectations of what she expects the island to be, what she expects to find there. And, you know, the story that she's going to unravel about her parents. And I think that, yeah, I, I completely agree with you. I think reading books can be like that. You can read about a place and feel that you know it when you've never actually been there. Or you can have been told a story about a country that, yeah, you've, you've not visited yourself, but you feel a great deal of affection for because you think you do. Yeah, she really feels that this that this island is part of her own personal story, even though she's she's never been there. Laura also describes herself as, as a hopeless romantic. Um, and you've, we've said before, you know, she does these stories about people who have these these wonderful meet cute stories, and she can't really imagine meeting her soulmate, you know, on an app or you know at a bar or something like that. Um, how do you think her attitude towards romance, you know, does it help or does it hinder her own search for for love? I think it. I think it hinders her. Like I think she, you know, it, it comes out in conversation that she has um, ended some relationships because of quite minor things like the fact that they didn't like hot drinks or they wore the wrong shoes or they you know her friends basically think she's too picky and that she's kind of dismissing men for factors that they don't think are you know deal breakers but in her head she's like when I when I meet him when I know I'll know um you know she's she's got she's got a very clear idea of what she thinks her perfect man looks like and a big theme of the book is kind of unpicking some of that and, you know, unpicking our expectation that you have to be really similar to the person that you fall in love with. You have to have the same interests. You have to do the same thing. So, yeah, I think I think her journey from hopeless romantic to maybe slightly more realistic romantic is is a big part of the book. 
Yeah, and I think I, you know, I always enjoy a narrative where what happens to the character subverts that character's expectations about you know what ought to happen or what she thinks is going to happen. And I think that's certainly the case. She has this amazing experience on Jersey, but it's it's very different from the experience that she expected to have. I think it's, it's fair to say. Um, she also on on the subject of being romantic, uh, she I think I can't remember. If, she asked this question of her friends or their friends ask it the other way around, but they say, Do, is it possible to be romantic and also a feminist? Um, you have a character answer that question, but how, how would you answer that question? Well, I think this is something I put in the book because it's something that I slightly struggle with because you know, as a romance writer, there's, there's certain tropes and there's certain expectations of the genre. You know, It has to have a happy ending. Um, and I think that there's a lot of romance novels of the past and that, that maybe wouldn't stand up now to a modern audience. Yeah. And so it's sort of how do you do something romantic and fresh, but still have a heroine who wants a man, but doesn't need a man. You know, that for me is the difference. You know, you don't have to, you don't have to find a man at the end to fix your life. Um, you fix your life yourself. And then you might want to be with someone to kind of be the icing on the cake. And like, for me, that's the balance that's quite important in writing a modern novel, that it never feels like a man is fixing the heroine's life. And it, and it feels like that, that that's a certain struggle for, for Sophie, because she's so involved in this, you know, writing about romance and, and about, you know, the search for a partner that um, she, I think, I feel her struggling against that tendency to think this is all about finding the man. Yes, no, exactly. And I think that she she's at, she's at a stage, she's, you know, nearly 30. And I think lots of her friends are getting married and they're buying flats. And it's so it's not actually even just about being single. It's about that sense of being left behind, which I think a lot of people feel at that age. They feel, oh, everyone else has got their career sorted. Everyone else is, you know, buying property or getting married and that they're kind of they're they're fixing all the pieces of their lives together and if you're not at that stage it can be intimidating and demoralizing because you feel like i'm not where everyone else should be um i i also love that this is this is the book i mean you know she goes to jersey we it's a it's a romantic novel so we know there's a pretty good chance she is going to find a man but she finds a lot of other things too um but but as we as we pick up the novel as a reader and knowing that it's a romance and thinking that's about finding a man and yet she and her friends chide themselves for having these conversations that they say don't pass the Bechdel test, the Alison Bechdel. Um, can, can you talk about the role of, of her, her female friends in her life? Yeah, so again, this is like, you know, every, this is me, like I like, I like to be a little bit self-referential about trope and about, you know, being very self-aware of what I'm writing. And, you know, for me in novels like this, there's always like the sounding board best friend who, you know, she the main character rings up and tells about their love life and you know I, sometimes those characters are, are not quite as 3D as they would be in real life and so for me I just thought it was funny if that character was kind of railing against her role as sounding board best friend and she actually wanted to have conversations with her about politics or the state of the economy or you know what's happening in the world and uh, and Laura's like no 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 we don't have time for that I want to talk about my love life and yeah so for me that's just uh, like a very self-referential kind of joke about the characters you find in rom-coms and, and and the confines that they're put into. Yeah, there's this marvelous moment when she calls a friend to talk about, you know, all of her, her personal life and the friend is like, did, did you see this article about how the justices for the U.S. Supreme Court are chosen? Isn't this fascinating? You know, it just, I thought that was great. Um, you know, there, there is, 
there is obviously there is love in the opening pages of this novel. She writes about love. Um, and there is also loss. We talked about the, you know, the dead cat, but there's not just the dead cat. We, we find out early on that Laura has a boyfriend who is now an ex-boyfriend. We find out that her mother has passed away recently. Um, what do you see as the relationship between love and loss in the novel? Or what is the role of loss in the novel? Well, I think that, yeah, there's a strong theme of kind of love and loss and grief and sort of how we hold on to love that used to be there that isn't there anymore and I think for you know Laura who comes across as yeah a bit of a naive character at the beginning and a bit of a help, hopeless romantic a lot of that is tied up with her struggling to kind of overcome the loss of her mother who was very very close to her and I think for me it's exploring there's a, there's a line in the book where they talk about you know where does the love go when no one is left to tell the story because you know th these, these stories get passed down through generations of how people met and how in love people were, but there comes a point where no one remembers that story anymore and it doesn't get told. And then it kind of goes again for a second time. And I think that like, I wanted to explore that thematically about kind of mythology of, of love and, and the stories that get passed down, but also kind of how you hold on to memory. And, you know, one of the characters in the book, Ted, is clearing out his father's house to move him into assisted living. And he's having to go through all of his possessions and work out what he wants to keep and what he doesn't. And he and Laura end up having a conversation about kind of what objects are important and what hold kind of meaning and what are rubbish and should be got rid of. And, you know, that that's an interesting area for me. I don't know what the answer is, but I enjoyed kind of exploring it. Yeah. Um, and, I, and I want to talk more about that in a little bit. But. Um, but I want to mention that she has one other character besides her, her close friends who she, we don't ever see on the stage of the novel. She just communicates by phone or by text. Um, and that's her grandmother. And, and her grandmother gives her this, uh, this fascinating piece of advice, which is uh, not to measure potential suitors by her parents' relationship. And she has this kind of ideal of what her parents' relationship was like. Her father died when she was very young, so it's it's easy to have that ideal, and and I can relate to that because my mother died when I was very young, and so it's easy to have an ideal about what what that relationship was like when I don't remember ever seeing it. Um, but but how does her her myth, her created memory of her parents' uh, relationship affect her courtship, for want of a better word? I think I think it has made her have very unrealistic expectations. I think she as yeah, the, the mythology of her parents relationship as she heard it was they had this incredible meeting. They had this wonderful relationship. She was, you know, her father died when she was too young to remember him. So she never grew up in a household where she saw, you know, parents arguing or having a tiff or she never saw the light and shade of what a real relationship might look like. And so I think that she has found herself in relationships and they weren't perfect or they weren't exactly what she had hoped and dreamed for and so she's quite quick to dismiss them and I, I yeah I definitely think that her her kind of fantasy of the, the relationship her parents had has played into her very high expectations of what she expects love to be when she finds it. Yeah. One of the things I really loved about this novel is that it's I mean it's a great it's a great read it's fun it's in a fun place it's romantic but it doesn't shy away from dealing with with difficult issues and one of my absolutely favorite characters is ted's father uh jerry uh who is suffering from 
Parkinson's disease and is going to have to move, as you said, move into assisted, assisted living. Um, and I have a, I have a sister who's had Parkinson's for over 20 years. And so this really sort of hit, hits home for me. So can you tell us, first of all, why you chose that particular um, difficulty for Jerry to be dealing with and, and then talk about Jerry and how he handles his situation? So yeah, this is an interesting one for me because I again I like to I like to have a bit of light and shade and have more serious um, topics in the novel and I know I want I wanted my character of um, Ted to be you know dealing with a father who was going for a big change in his life and was having to move into assisted living and you know I'd read a little bit about Parkinson's and it was kind of fitted the bill for me but I was reluctant to write about it without talking to someone who'd experienced it, just, just you know, he's, he's a secondary character, but I wanted it to feel authentic. So I did actually ask, you know, around some friends, I said, does anyone know anyone with Parkinson's who'd be willing to talk to me about their experience? And I was introduced to this, to this guy who was just such an inspiring, interesting man that my conversations with him actually kind of shaped the character of Jerry. Mm -hmm. So he was a carpenter who had got Parkinson's, you know, pretty, pretty young in his 40s. Um, and it had really shaped his whole life because he, he couldn't do a lot of, you know, he's an amazing carpenter. He used to be an amazing sailor. All of these things he used to love doing that had gradually been taken away from him. And, you know, he, he was degenerating quite quickly. So also, what does the future look like for him? But he was one of the most optimistic kind of people I've ever spoken to. And his, his life philosophy, you know, I've put into the mouth of Jerry in the book where he sort of says, you know, if I look back at my life, I am only going to be depressed about all the things I used to be able to do that I can't do now. And if I look forward, I'm only going to be, it's only getting it worse. This is not something that gets better. So the only place I can live and be happy is, is in the present. So I enjoy what I can do today. And I, you know, I try and live each day at a time. And like, that's just an analogy for how we should all be living our lives. And, you know, he just summed it up so well for me that that just really stuck with me. And I said, you know, do you mind if I put that in my novel? Because I just, yeah, I thought that was, a great piece of life advice. Yeah, I mean, there, there are so many great characters in this novel, but if you said to me, I could only spend an evening with one of them, I, I think I'd pick Jerry. I mean, he just, he, there's, as you said, there's this positivity to him, this, he, he just is uh, such a great example of the resilience of the human spirit, you know. I mean, I think what's also interesting for me is when you're writing a kind of relatively light novel, there's, I, I was also nervous about writing this kind of optimistic person with a condition when I don't, you know, when I, when I personally haven't experienced it yeah. of being something kind of unrealistic. Whereas meeting this guy who really is that made me more confident to put him in a novel because I'm not saying every person with Parkinson's is going to have that attitude. I'm sure there's a very broad spectrum of, 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 of views of how you would um, deal with your condition, but you know, meeting this guy and seeing his philosophy and how he dealt with it was just, yeah, it was really inspiring and and made me more confident to put that character in the book because, like, he exists somewhere. <laughs> yeah, yeah. There, you you have a lot of um, pop culture references in this book, which I love from everywhere from Friends to Phil Collins to Knives Out and and lots more. Uh, but there's also this glorious spot on piece of invented pop culture uh, in the form of a book called Tiger Woman. <laughs> Um, can you tell us about that book and, you know, sort of where that came from and the role that it plays in your narrative? 
Um, so I think I was reading Glennon Doyle's Untamed when I was writing this book and I love Glennon Doyle and her book is fantastic but yeah there's this something about the kind of life advice through the metaphor of animals that I just I really enjoyed and I think it's very kind of zeitgeisty I suppose. So I like the idea that Laura's friends had kind of pushed on her this kind of inspirational book that was going to sort her life out. Um, and so, yeah, the book Tiger Woman, it's basically kind of life advice lived through a tiger. Um, so a lot of the advice is kind of, you know, would, a, would a, a tiger has to go on 20 hunts before it makes a kill? But, you know, if a, if, a, if a tiger comes back from a hunt empty handed, do they berate themselves for being yeah. a terrible hunter or do they just get back out there and hunt again? And so, yeah, it's it's genuine kind of advice, but it's also a little bit of a pastiche of all these kind of um, motivational novels that we we find so many of these days. I, you know, I'm, I'm telling you, some a publisher is going to come to you and say, we want to publish Tiger Woman. Can you write the rest of it? <laughs> yeah. And what's funny is I started out as it being a bit of a satire. And then I look back at it now and I'm like, all of this is actually really good advice. Like I should, and, and that's kind of what happens to Laura as well. Like, you know, she starts reading it and she's quite skeptical and then she kind of absorbs a little bit of the tiger energy and um, yeah. it ends up, does actually help her. So yeah, it's kind of her relationship with th that kind of novel is, is, is interesting. Yeah. Now um, I don't want to, I don't want to give anything away here, but this novel includes phrases like beardy McCastaway and <laughs> sex kebab can you talk about your use of humor in this book? Because there's some very funny stuff here. Um, yeah, so that again, like this is written in the, the uh, unlike my last novel, this is written in like first person present. And I think that just allows a lot more room for like quite, I don't know what the phrase would be, like colloquial kind of humor maybe. It's just sort of, I find a lot funny about what your inner narrative is saying, you know, when you're describing people you've met and she meets, you know, the cab driver and she thinks he looks like Tom Hanks from Castaway. So she calls him, you know, Beardy McCastaway in her head. And yeah. no one ever hears that apart from her. But I think we do that kind of thing all the time. You know, we're telling ourselves stories about people. We're making up nicknames for people. We're kind of, you know, chastising ourselves for our own kind of, tangents our heads are going off on and like for me that is funny and I liked being in Laura's brain and kind of seeing like the madness that was that was in there yeah, yeah. um and yeah I think having that having her inner dialogue is is and being able to hear her voice is such a good way to in, to inject humor into the narrative because she is you know at at heart she's a very funny person even even when she's having you know difficult times uh, this novel, we, we sort of touched on this a little bit earlier, but I want to dig into it a little bit more deeply. It's a novel in which Laura has, I would say, an evolving relationship around the idea of the importance of objects. Um, she says at one point, I think objects can be powerful conduits for, for memories. Tell us about the role of, of talismans in the, in the novel. And, and do you have objects in your life that sort of hold that kind of special meaning that, that she finds in, in certain objects? Yeah, this, I mean, this is a theme that kind of evolved as I was writing and I kind of made more of it because I just found it very interesting. Yes. Um, and I think so it was one of the main talismans in the novel is this coin that her mother and father met through and she wears it as a necklace and she feels like it holds like the story of her parents and, and, and then by kind of extension, it almost holds like their love. 
And so she puts a lot of credence on objects. And I think her mother used to make jewelry and she used to say that she could kind of feel the story of an object by just touching it. And I read a little bit about hoarders and one of the articles that I read really kind of stuck with me because it said some people hoard because they just remember things differently and they can't remember something until they see it or they hold it. And physically, if they, you know, if they're holding a, a shopping list or something, they can suddenly remember exactly what it was like to go shopping that day. And so there's a, just a lot more of an emotional investment in an object than other people might have. And I just thought that was really interesting because I think we're all very varied on that scale as well. Like, you know, my husband would love us to be minimalist, have nothing, get rid of all objects and just live a very Spartan existence. Whereas I wouldn't say I'm a hoarder, but I also do, you know, put a lot of emotion into like, you know, baby clothes or like the first toy they had or yeah. like, you know, I, you, you're, you're investing emotion in, into an object. And I liked exploring kind of where the healthy boundary of that is. And, you know, whether whether there's, whether, um, there's no judgment, like good or bad about whether it's good to keep things or not keep things. But I think it's very different for different people. And that's why we're so different about how we interact with objects. Yeah. And one of the ways you bring that home about how it's very different for different people is this contrast between Laura and her father and Ted and his father. So Laura has um, really almost no physical objects to remember her dead father from. She has a watch. She has this coin you know, a, a few other things, but but very, very little. Um, whereas Ted is burdened with emptying out a house that his family has lived in for generations and is just absolutely jam-packed with um, with objects that might, as you said, might uh, elicit a memory. Um, can, can you talk about that that twin dynamic and what, what do they learn from one another as they're going through that process? So I think for Laura, when you learn about her, the fact that she doesn't have much from her father, all she has about him are the stories she's been told and the objects she's been given from him. And I think that kind of shows you why she puts so much stock in the objects that she finds in the suitcase. You know, she, it's not just that To Kill a Mockingbird is her favorite book. It's her favorite book, but it's also the addition of the book that she was left by her father, who she was also told loved that novel. And there's a part in the novel where, you know, you say a shared love of books it's like having a mutual friend. You know, it's it's like if you if you love a character in a novel and someone else has loved them, then it, it's like it's like a connection to them. And I think that that is it kind of allows you to understand why Laura feels so strongly about some of those objects in the suitcase. Whereas I think for Ted, he's looking at this house where he's lost his mother. He's losing his dad to assisted living. And he says, I don't see any of that love in these objects. This is junk. This means nothing to me. And he feels burdened by it. And so I think that, I think, yeah, like whether, whether an object has meaning or not depends on a lot on the kind of history and heritage about, about where it came to be. And uh, yeah, I like that contrast. And I think, I think that they, they have the scene where they're sitting together clearing out a house and they talk about objects and what's important. And I think they, they share a little of their, their views and perspectives with each other. Yeah. I mean, certainly as, as somebody who writes novels about rare books and the way they move through through people's lives, I, I very much connected to that idea of her love of Mockingbird. And it's a perfect novel to choose for that because it is in many ways a novel. It's a novel about a lot of things, but it's a novel about an idealized father figure. And so, you know, that it, it just it plays very well with Laura's own sort of idealization of, of her own father. Um, you, you mentioned this quote earlier, and it's one I wrote down because I just loved it. She says, where do you think love goes when no one is left to tell the stories? Laura, I think, is 
is very concerned about stories. I mean, partly stories are her profession. Um, she doesn't want the story of her parents to get lost. She wants to write it down. And then there's this, this amazing, beautiful illustration of all of this about her passion for these, these drawings of seagulls that a Ukrainian refugee who was hiding in the attic of the house from Nazis during World War II has drawn. And she desperately wants the story of those drawings to be passed on to, to future owners of the house. Um, why do you think Laura is, is so concerned about preserving stories? So, yeah, it's interesting that, that because I think because she feels the last guardian of her parents' story because they're both gone now. And I think she feels that, yeah, if, if she doesn't keep telling the story and, you know, holding on to those objects that are connected to her parents, that, that they'll be lost. And if they're lost, did it ever exist? Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, for me, this topic kind of hit home because I, I was doing a project about the occupation in Jersey. Um, Jersey was obviously occupied by the Germans during the Second World War. And there, you know, are all sorts of interesting stories about survivors, people who, um, yeah, sheltered people, risking their own life to hide them in their homes. And I worked on a project where we were kind of recording first person kind of recollections about the occupation because that generation is nearly gone. There are very, very few people left who um, remember it and have stories about it. And I think as a society, we, we have a responsibility to listen to those stories and make sure they are not forgotten, especially in kind of, you know, horrific, like war situations. Like yeah. it's only from studying the history and hearing the stories that we prevent those things happening again in the future. Yeah. So to return, Back to the subject of nostalgia, where we started out before before we end. Um, Laura's grandmother tells her you shouldn't get nostalgic for other people's people's memories, and yet Laura's job is telling the stories of, of other people's love, other people's romances. How, how do you think our own ideas about love, about our own relationships, are shaped by the stories that we hear about other people? I think that's an interesting story and I think that, uh, uh, sorry, I think that's an interesting question and I think that it plays in very much to this kind of online Instagram culture where you might see a lot of someone's life reflected in the perfect pictures of their perfect life and their wonderfully staged engagement photos but that's never what the real whole story is and you know so I, I think it's a reminder really that when we see other people's perfect lives, whatever that may be, maybe, you know, having whatever your view of perfect is, um, it's not always what's going on beneath the surface. And, you know, it's important to remember that, I suppose. Well, I mean, from some of us, some of our points of view, the perfect life is being a novelist living on Jersey. So that's, that sounds pretty nice. <laughs> now we like to end um, every episode of Inside the Writer's Studio with the same 10 questions. Um, you should be able to answer each of them in just a few words, but hopefully they'll give us a little insight into you and into your writing. So if you're ready, we will begin. What word do you love to work into your writing? Hedgehog. Oh, and, and I've got to say, readers, there's some great hedgehog moments in this novel. <laughs> <laughs> what word do you hate to encounter in other people's writing? Moist. Mm. Don't like the word moist. Where's your favorite place to write? In a bustling coffee shop in a city. Where could you never write? With my children in the room. 
to what rule of grammar do you pay least attention? All of it, because that's what editors are for. They fix all that. <laughs> they fix all the grammar for me. <laughs> what was the first book you remember reading? Reading myself. Mallory Towers, probably. Yeah. Ina, Ina Blyton, I yeah. think, either being read or maybe they were some of the first ones I read myself. Yeah, they were. They were I remember being in love with boarding school because of Mallory Towers. <laughs> what are you reading now? Now I am reading the new Anthony Doer, is that how you pronounce it? Um, Cloud Cuckoo Land. Yeah. That's what I'm... What book would you like to have written? I have just read a proof of a book coming out next year called Impossible by Sarah Lotz, which is one of the best rom-coms I've ever read. And I wish I had written that. <laughs> what sort of book would you like to write, but probably never will? I would really like to write a kind of mashup of romance, sci-fi, kind of futuristic. So watch this space because one day I will. But yeah, I love cross-genre novels. So I want to write a rom-com in space one day. So yeah, watch this space. And finally, what would you like to hear a reader tell you? When readers say they've been out of the habit of reading and my book got them back into reading, that is one of the nicest things. Because I think in, it's, life is really busy. It's really hard to make time to read. And when people tell me that they, they, they easily read mine and now they want to read more books, I love that. That's fantastic. This has been Inside the Writer's Studio. I'm your host, Charlie Lovett. And my guest today has been Sophie Cousins, whose novel, Just Haven't Met You Yet, is available wherever books are sold. Sophie, thanks for joining us. Thank you so much. It was lovely to be on. Inside the Writer's Studio is sponsored by Bookmarks, a literary nonprofit that runs the largest annual book festival in the Carolinas and operates a community gathering place and nonprofit independent bookstore in downtown Winston-Salem, North Carolina. To find out more about Bookmarks and all its programs, visit www.bookmarksnc.org. Inside the Writer's Studio is proud to be affiliated with Libro FM. Unlike other audiobook platforms, Libro FM supports your local independent bookstore. Whether you buy a single book or, like me, a monthly subscription, you can link your account to your local store or to Bookmarks to support literary community. For a special two-for-one offer, go to Libro.fm and use the discount code WRITERS. If you've enjoyed Inside the Writer's Studio, please consider leaving a rating or review online at Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. Inside the Writer's Studio posts new episodes on the 1st and 15th of every month. In our next episode, I'll be talking to Kimberly Martin about her novel, Doctors and Friends. Until then, thanks for listening, and may you read with wonder and write with passion. Thank you.